friends, we're coming today to look at John's Gospel. Uh, it's the second last in our series as we've sort of enjoyed this journey through John's Gospel. Let me lead us in prayer as we come to look at God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for the good things that you have given us. We thank you particularly for the freedom we enjoy to meet here today around your Word to listen to what you have to say. We pray, Father, that as you've promised, you might grant us understanding of your word so that we might know how to live lives that please you and reflect all of your goodness to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. He's been flogged, he's been beaten, he's been mocked, he's been condemned to die by the authorities. He carried his own cross outside of the city and when he got to the appointed place, They stripped him of his clothes and crucified him naked. And now he hangs there, waiting to die. He's not the only one today. Two others are crucified with him, executed for various offences. His offence might seem a little bit unusual. The inscription fixed to the cross bearing his crime reads, The King of the Jews. But yet even that wasn't unique. He wasn't the first revolutionary the first pretender to a throne who'd met this gruesome and painful end at the hands of the Romans and he wouldn't be the last one they executed either. And as was their custom, the soldiers who carried out the order divided up his clothes among them. Nothing extraordinary there. Somehow amidst the pain, this man hanging there manages to have a rather touching conversation with his mother and a friend who was standing by. But I don't imagine he was the only one ever to do even that, even in his extreme circumstances. He cried out that he was thirsty. They gave him some vinegar on a sponge from a jar nearby and then he died. Having had a drink, he said, it is finished and he bowed his head and died. It could have been anyone. The Romans executed thousands of people in this way, both before and after this particular man. Is it just another cross, just another common criminal, just another failed revolutionary, just another visionary dreamer crushed by the world into which he didn't fit? Well, the way John recounts it for us here in his eyewitness account in John chapter 19, it almost could have been anyone. There wasn't anything that happened in the events themselves that was particularly unusual or extreme, except for four small details. Four small points here in John's account in chapter 19 where he indicates something is happening in this particular crucifixion that sets it apart from everything else. Four small events that actually reveal what's happening here is anything but small. And uh, the four times he mentions it, one in verse 24, one in verse 28, and then two in verse 36 and 37. And the common theme that unifies them all is that in each of those references, verse 24, verse 28, and verses 36 and 37, John talks about that this particular event happened to fulfil the Scriptures. To fulfil the Scriptures. So verse 24 is about the casting of lots to determine who got Jesus' tunic, which was the piece of clothing you wore underneath your sort of cloak. And then in verse 28, uh, he notes that they offered him sour wine or vinegar to drink. And he says that happened in fulfilment of scripture. 
In verse 36, he notes that they didn't break Jesus' legs, although they did, the two other criminals who were being executed. And he says that happened in fulfilment of Scripture. And then in verse 37, he points out that they pierced his side, which he says that happened in fulfilment of Scripture. These are the four points where John indicates to us in this very short account that what's happening here is very significant. It's not just another crucifixion. If you like, those are the four bumps in the zipper that stop you sort of whizzing right through. You go, whoa, hey, what was that? And another one, what was, what was that? Four points that sort of make you just sort of stop and think. Four points where sort of the clouds part and you can see the mountaintops and you suddenly realise where you really are. Or four points where the camera pulls back from the close-up close and suddenly you see the bigger scene and you realise what's really going on in this story. These are the four points that shed the light on the significance of this event. So what we're going to do here is look at these four points in John's short account here from John chapter 19, verse 17 through to verse 42. You can see the outline up there on the board. And the first point I want to make is that Jesus dies here in this account in obedience to God's plan. Jesus dies in obedience to God's plan. So I want you to stop and think for a moment. In this short account, what is the combined effect of these four references to Scripture being fulfilled, all in such a short account? I think John is making the point very strongly that when Jesus died, it was in obedience to God's plan. It was to fulfil God's plan. This wasn't a haphazard tragic mistake this death it wasn't an injustice that somehow slipped past God's sovereign control this is part of the divine plan in fact right at the very point where you would think it's most unlikely that this could possibly be God's plan the point where God's chosen king is being executed by God's chosen people right at that point we go well that can't be God's plan that is the precise point where John clusters together these references to scripture being fulfilled as though he's saying to you I know this looks strange but this actually was God's plan he's making that point to us that here is God's plan in action where God's king is executed by his own creatures now it seems that that realisation that this was indeed God's plan probably skipped by Jesus' own followers, the disciples. Seems to me as we read these accounts, they didn't at this stage really get what was going on. It wasn't until Jesus was raised from the dead they started to understand how these events fitted together. But Jesus himself wasn't in the dark. He understood how these events were fitting together. We saw that last week when we looked at Jesus' arrest. We saw how Jesus stepped forward in control, deliberately, into these events, knowing what was going to happen. He stepped forward in obedience. As Jesus said to Peter last week in John 18, verse 11, he said, I am certainly going to drink this cup that the Father has given me. I'm certainly going to drink this cup. And you can see, I think, here in the account of Jesus' death, that same obedience to his Father's plan. Have a look then in John 19, down at verse 30. John 19, verse 30. John the eyewitness records for us here. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished, or it is accomplished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's an unusual way to describe the point of death, really. 
bowing his head, he gave up or handed over his spirit. I think there's reflected there, even at the very point of Jesus' death, you can see that he's in control of what's happening. He doesn't have his spirit wrested away from him. He doesn't have it sort of taken from him by force. No, even at the point of death, Jesus bows his head and gives up his spirit. It should remind us, I think, of Jesus' earlier words in John 10. John 10 verse 18, you might like to jot it down. John 10, 18. Listen to the way there Jesus speaks of his coming death. And think about how it's reflected in the account we just saw. He says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. And I've received this command from my Father. No one takes Jesus' life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. And I think you can see that even here, right at the account, the moment of Jesus' death. He dies in willing obedience to his Father. Bowing his head, he gives up his spirit. He has power from the Father to lay down his life like that. He knows from elsewhere, uh, John chapter 12, verse 24, we know that Jesus knows that laying down his life in this way will produce much fruit. Last weekend, uh, my wife and I, it was a slow Saturday night. Uh, We were sort of exhausted after the usual weekend of looking after our great and small and active family. Uh, and we were sort of crashing out and we decided we'd watch the third of the Lord of the Rings movies just because it had been sitting there on the shelf. We'd borrowed it from a friend about six months ago, not got around to watching it. Okay, let's watch it. We got through about two-thirds of it. You know, we've only watched about seven hours or however long it is. I mean, it's a long movie. But one of the things, and most of the movie strikes me, that third, third, third instalment of the series, it really is mostly a battle, just one sort of long battle. And it struck me as I watched it again, whenever you watch these sort of fictional battles, there seems to be a common sort of theme. I mean, the soldier, one group of soldiers in this particular movie, they're convinced that they're about to go into battle and die. They're overwhelmed, the, the, the numbers opposing them are just stupendous, but they're still going to go into it, for honour's sake, I guess, put up a fight, and, but they know they're all going to die. Now, that's a fairly fearful position to be in, I imagine, facing your own death. And so there's sort of a dynamic that goes on, and this is what's common in a lot of these movies, I think. They seem to try to turn their fear into hype. They sort of go, yes, yes, we will die, yes, And they, they go from fear to hype, and the hype propels them to their death. That's what they have to do, right? It's not like that for Jesus. That's not how it goes. Jesus goes in knowing he is about to die. He goes in with a quiet certainty, a confidence. We know that he's greatly troubled by it. We saw in the earlier chapters, the night before, he knew this was going to happen. He's greatly troubled in spirit. But he goes in with a quiet confidence and a certainty. And he gives up his spirit. You might say, well... That's a pretty impressive thing to be able to do like that. You know, face your own death with that sort of certainty. Just as well, we don't have to face that sort of death. Just as well, we don't have to sort of voluntarily sort of give up our life like that. Well, if you've got your copy of John's Gospel there, you might like to turn back with me to John chapter 12 because Jesus actually wants you to. John chapter 12, verse 24 to 26 John chapter 12, 24 to 26. 
And you will see there in verse 24, he's talking about his own death. And Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about his own death. Then look what he says next. He says, Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honour. See, to be a Christian means to be a follower of Jesus. And he presents his own death here as a model for all of his followers. A model in the sense that we see that Jesus did not hold so tightly onto his life in this world. He gave up his life in this world in loving obedience to his Father. And we're to have the same attitude. To sit loosely to our life in this world. Not to not care about life in this world. Not to be remote from it or distant from it or be indifferent towards it. But knowing that there is actually a greater life than the life in this world. There is eternal life. Life in continual relationship with the Father through the Son in the Spirit. And having that attitude where we can sit lightly to our life in this world, that attitude that Jesus modelled as he even gave up his own life in this world, that's the attitude that you ought to have. Now, what might that attitude actually look like in your life? Maybe you will face martyrdom. I don't know what God has in your life for the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years. I don't know where you'll end up living and what, what the state will be to, towards Christians in that country, wherever you are. I don't know. Maybe it will mean martyrdom for you. But it also actually, I think, affects marks, from martyrdom to marks, that is, exam marks. It actually affects the way you approach your coming exams. How tightly are you holding on to life in this world? Those who love their life lose it. But those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. How tightly are you holding on to your life in this world? Are you keeping in mind the bigger life that is real life, eternal life? Now we're going to learn more details here about the significance and meaning of Jesus' death as we look at these four points where John says Scripture was fulfilled. We've seen that overall, when you take them as a package, they teach us that, yes, Jesus died in obedience to his Father. Now let's just take the first two occurrences of this, in verse 24 and 28 of John 19. If you move back to John 19 there. When we take the first two fulfilment passages together, we see that Jesus dies as the suffering Christ. That's the second point. Jesus dies as the suffering Christ. Now verse 24, as I mentioned before, is about the casting of lots for Jesus' tunic. And John there says that fulfills Psalm 22, verse 18. Psalm 22, verse 18. And then in verse 28, with respect to Jesus' thirst and being offered sour wine, it's not exactly clear precisely what passage John has in mind, but the best candidate seems to be probably Psalm 69. So Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 21. Now, both of these psalms, if you go back and read these psalms in your own time, both these psalms have a lot of similarities. They're both psalms about being surrounded by enemies who want to kill you. Both these psalms. And in both psalms, the writer in that situation cries out to God for deliverance. 
And in both Psalms, the writer trusts in God despite his pretty dire circumstances. The interesting thing about the two Psalms is who wrote them. If you look it up in your Old Testament, you'll find that both Psalms were written by King David. King David wrote these Psalms about his own experience as God's chosen king. This is what it was like for him to be God's chosen king, to be surrounded by enemies who wanted to kill him. That was the lot of the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah. This was David's experience. And from the way John has used them here at Jesus' death, we can see that John certainly regards them as being fulfilled, those psalms were fulfilled in Jesus. They're not just songs about King David, but under God's hand they're also prophecy about this greater king who will be descended from David, God's great anointed one, the the, the capital C Christ who would come, who'd reign on David's throne forever. So these two psalms, written by King David, but fulfilled by Jesus as he hangs on the cross. How does that affect in the way we read John 19 and Jesus' death? Well, it tells us this man dying on the cross, despite the appearances, really is the Christ. See, at the time, almost everybody who's standing around that cross looking at this guy dying there, Jesus, almost everyone is convinced this guy was not the king of the Jews. I mean, Pilate might have had it written above like the inscription on the cross that he was the king of the Jews, but Pilate certainly didn't believe it. The reason he had King of the Jews written up there was to get up the nose of the Jews, to get up the nose of the Jewish authorities, saying, this is your king, and look what we, the Roman Empire, do to him. It was to get up their noses. But then the Jews didn't believe that he was King of the Jews either. If you read the account, the Jewish authorities try to get the sign changed, because they don't want people thinking that Jesus was King of the Jews. They say, change it to, this man said, I'm King of the Jews. So no one believed that he was king of the Jews. But then John cites these two psalms and says, actually, he was. He really was the Christ. These very things that happened as they, they, they cast a dice for his tunic, as they gave him sour wine to drink, that's exactly what we knew would happen to this Christ. He is the Christ. It's not a picture of a reigning or a ruling king that we'd expect But then if we knew the Old Testament, it is what we should expect. We should have expected that the Christ, following in King David's footsteps, yes, the Christ would suffer. He'd be a rejected Christ, a suffering Christ, yes, an executed Christ. If we know the suffering servant passages from Isaiah, we know that God's chosen one, through whom God's salvation will come, we know that he would suffer and be mocked and be rejected. We should have expected that it would be like this. Now remember, John's motivation for recording all these events we've looked at many times. We've often flicked forward to John chapter 20 verse 31 and by now it's almost on the same page as where we're up to. John's written these things so that you might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so right at this point where you may be most tempted to go, that can't be God's chosen one. Right at that point he puts two quotations to say, this fulfilled the scriptures to show that he is the Christ so that you might believe that he is the Christ. One other point to note here, though. One other point to note here is that these two Psalms, which John points us to, go on to say that this suffering Christ, it won't end 
in suffering and death. It ends in deliverance. Both Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 end with great celebrations that God has actually delivered his chosen one. So knowing those two Psalms and the way John's used them, even as we look at Jesus hanging on the cross, we should have some sense that actually if those two Psalms are true about this moment and this man, it's not going to end just in death. It will end in deliverance for God's chosen one. And that points us through, I think, to what we'll see next week as we come to the great end of John's account of Jesus' life in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now let's just stop and think about what, how does this truth that Jesus dies as the suffering Christ impact upon you or me? I don't need to tell you, I think, about the reality of suffering in this world. At least I hope I don't have to tell you about that reality. If you've got any eyes to see, if you've got any ears to hear, if you've got just an ounce of compassion in your heart, then you know that life is often full of suffering. You may know that from your own experience. I don't know your stories. But certainly you'll probably know it from the lives of those around you. I think this particular point, that Jesus dies as the suffering Christ, means in part that we can realise that suffering itself has a profound place in the life of God. Suffering has a profound place in the life of God. Because remember, these two Psalms point to Jesus being the Christ, but we know from John's Gospel, Jesus isn't just a human king. He is God, he is the Word who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So as you see this man hanging on the cross, you see God incarnate suffering. God himself dying there as a man. Can God suffer? Can God die? Now they're big questions and they're not easy questions and you need to have careful thought, biblical thought about how to answer those questions. And you might like to get hold of the Ancon takes from earlier this year where we, we tried to address some of these issues. But today I just want to make the observation that since Jesus really is God in human flesh, then suffering is not alien even to God's experience. And that gives us a really profound framework in which to process suffering. I mean, we know from the scriptures that the way God intended life to be back in the Garden of Eden, there was no suffering for humanity. And we know that his great plan is to renew all things and to have a new creation and there will be no suffering. But between the garden and the new creation where you and I live, yes, this life is full of suffering because of humanity's rebellion against God, because we are all under the power of the evil one who rules this world. So yes, there is suffering now. But that here, when we look at Jesus suffering on the cross, I think that there's at least three things that can help us in our suffering. First is this, we can see that even terrible human suffering brought about by human wickedness and human evil, even the blackest of human suffering can be caught up by God into his good purposes. Yes, this was a wicked thing to execute an innocent man. It was a terribly wicked thing to execute Jesus, God's Christ, God become flesh. Yet even this terribly wicked thing was caught up by God into his good purposes. We can see here, that God takes even the blackest of suffering and uses it. Romans 8, chapter 28. We know all things work together for good for those who love God. Second point I think that can help us here is we see that God understands our pain. 
Whatever your suffering is, however bad it is, God is not remote from you in your experience of suffering. In Jesus the Christ, we have one who understands suffering from the inside, who understands pain and can help us in our own suffering. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. Because Jesus himself was tested by what he suffered, he's able to help those who are being tested. And finally, I think we see there at the cross, particularly in Jesus' confident expectation that he would be delivered from this suffering, that there is hope in suffering. There is an end to suffering. And I don't mean an end of, finally I die and my suffering is over, like the light's being turned out and then finally the pain is over. I mean a glorious end. An end of eternal life with no more suffering. That's the great end of suffering that we're living and waiting for and have our faith in Christ for. That's the sure hope of an end to suffering found in Christ. And it's that sure hope that explains why Christians can be joyful even in suffering. Not because they enjoy suffering. No one enjoys suffering. They can be joyful in suffering because they know of the great hope that is secured for them in Christ the new creation where there's no more suffering and we look forward to that day. So I just want to say to you as people who experience suffering or know people who suffer, take heart here in the suffering Christ. A wise person once said, if you haven't suffered yet, then you just haven't lived very long. If you haven't suffered yet, you just haven't lived very long. So take heart here in the cross of Christ. Know that God can use even our suffering for his good purposes. That he knows our pain from the inside. And that there's a sure hope of an end to suffering in Christ. Well let's move on and look at the uh, last two places where John talks about the fulfilment of scripture. And we're down to verses 36 and 37. So the third point here is that Jesus dies as the substitute Passover lamb. Jesus dies as the substitute Passover lamb. We're looking at verse 36 and noting that the soldiers did not break Jesus' legs. John says this, These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. Now the reason they broke their legs was because uh, it often took, or sometimes took days for people to die when being crucified. Crucifixion is commonly recognised as quite probably the worst of human tortures. If you're going to die some way, this is not the way you want to die. And it took some people, depending on the strength uh, that they had when they were crucified, it took some people days to perish as they hung there. Because eventually you end up dying by asphyxiation. The point is that you keep trying to push your body up so you can keep breathing. And so in the end you just run out of strength and you can't push your body up anymore, even desperate for breath, and so you end up just running out. So depending on how strong you are, it could take a long time. But the Jews here had a particular problem. The next day was a very holy day, a very special day, and they didn't want these criminals still hanging there alive on the cross. So they asked the Romans to go along and break their legs because obviously if you break their legs they can't push themselves up anymore and it's going to come quick. So they went along to do that and they broke the two on the outside legs. They were still alive. They came to Jesus and he was already dead. So they didn't need to break his legs. 
And John says, this happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled, none of his bones shall be broken. And the verse John's referring to here is from Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. You might like to jot that down. Exodus 12, 46, where God is giving directions to Moses about what's called the Passover lamb. Uh, and John is very explicitly identifying here Jesus is the true Passover lamb. That's, what he, that's the point he's making, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. So to get a better picture of what this Passover lamb was about, you might like to turn back to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12, verse 21 to 28. Exodus 12, 21 to 28. You could read right through Exodus 12 to get a better picture of uh, what the Passover was about, or chapter 11 and chapter 12, but uh, let me just read this small bit from verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. That is, you're meant to sort of dab the blood over the doorframe of your house. None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over, hence Passover lamb, pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you down. You shall observe this rite as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he's promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites went and did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. What was the point of the original Passover lamb? Very simply, it was sacrificed so that your family could live. That was the point of the Passover lamb. It was substitutionary. It was sacrificed. It died so that your family might live. The blood of that dead lamb splashed onto your doorposts. That's what saved you from this judgment that's coming. And now John's telling us it's Jesus who is the Passover lamb. It's his body that is going to be sacrificed so that people can live. It's his blood that will be spilt. Now, identifying Jesus as the Passover lamb, I think is going to mean two things, two implications. First is this. If Jesus is the Passover lamb, that must mean that there is a judgment coming. So you remember the first Passover lamb, it was sacrificed to save you from the coming judgment. And now if John's saying Jesus is the true Passover lamb, that means there must be a judgment coming. Indeed, Jesus has said as much. If you jot this down earlier, uh, John chapter 12, verse 48 Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says to people, The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge. He says that we're all going to be judged about how we've responded to Jesus' words. Have you heeded Jesus' words here in John's Gospel? 
Have you believed in him? Have you trusted his words? Have you obeyed his words? Now if you sort of match yourself up against sort of a perfect standard of sort of perfect hearing, perfect heeding, perfect obedience, if you match yourself up against that sort of standard, we're all going to come up distressingly short. And that's disturbing. Because that means we would face the just judgment of God when he measures us against Jesus' words. If Jesus is the Passover lamb, there's a judgment coming. But the other fact about Jesus being the Passover lamb is that we can be saved from this judgment that's coming. That's the second point, that as our sacrificial Passover lamb, Jesus can save us from this. His blood, sploshed over our door frames, as it were, preserves us from God's condemnation. It's him instead of us. Now, this substitution theme has been a recurring theme right through John's Gospel, if you've been following with us as we've moved through it this year. Uh, Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life so that the sheep might live. He talked, uh, Caiaphas in John chapter 11 says, it's better that this one man die for the nation than the whole nation perish. There's this substitutionary thing that Jesus was going to die so that others didn't have to. So that others didn't have to face this just judgment of God. And so what we see here when we see Jesus the Passover lamb in the words of John Stott, he says, you see here the self-substitution of God. God substituting himself in for humanity. Uh, John Stott puts it this way. He says, substitution is at the heart of both sin and salvation. Because the essence of sin, he says, is man substituting himself where only God deserves to be. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself in where only man deserves to be. Well, it does raise the question of how. How do we participate in Jesus' sacrifice? I mean, as the Passover lamb. It's not like we have his blood in a bowl that we can literally splosh around a doorframe. How do you participate? Well, the message right through John's Gospel is, is consistent. The way you participate in Jesus' sacrifice is by believing. Put your trust in Jesus and you will live. Jesus says this. This is his promise in John chapter 5, verse 24. John 5, 24, he says this. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment. So Jesus died as the true Passover lamb so that we can be saved from this coming just judgment of God through faith. Another reflection here just as I was thinking about this during the week, I thought, isn't it one of the greatest travesties of the world that people still don't know that the mighty one true God substituted himself in to save them in the cross of Jesus. Isn't that a huge travesty? I mean, we think there's all sorts of travesties in the world that we, we haven't really got on board with global warming or we haven't signed the Kyoto Protocol or we haven't... There's plastic bags still in shopping centres, for goodness sake. What a travesty. Isn't the greatest travesty that there are human beings living on the planet who don't realise that the one true God substituted himself in at the cross of Jesus. Isn't that the greatest travesty? 
My oldest son has been watching and reading C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. Uh, and it's the line, the witch in the wardrobe in particular, is a wonderful analogy of the work of Jesus as a substitute to save. Uh, if you know the story, uh, Aslan is the Jesus, the Christ type figure. He's a great lion and there's a particular character, Edmund, who um, is going to die. But Aslan cuts a deal with the witch uh, so that he might actually, the great King Aslan, substitute himself in so that Edmund might live. And he does it. He goes to death so that this boy Edmund can live. And astoundingly, just the way the story is told, Edmund never realises. I can't actually find a place anywhere in the book where Edmund actually is aware of the fact that Aslan was the reason he could live, that Aslan substituted himself in. He just knows that he didn't die and he's not sure why. There's a great moment in what I just thought I'd share with you as two other characters, Lucy and Susan, are talking about what's happened because they saw it, they know. He says this, Does he know, whispered Lucy to Susan, talking about Edmund, does he know what Aslan did for him? Does he know what the arrangement with the witch really was? Hush, no, of course not, said Susan. Oughtn't he, be to, oughtn't he to be told, said Lucy. Oh, surely not, said Susan. It would be too awful for him. Think how you'd feel if you were he. All the same, I think he ought to know, said Lucy. And at that moment they were interrupted. It's a great travesty that people don't know. And that's why the EU, as EUers, we must be committed always to our first object, which is to present students with the Christian gospel so they might know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. How many still don't know? Well, we come uh, finally in the last few minutes then to the final point, which is the last fulfilment of Scripture, which is in verse 37. And this time, the Scripture that John cites with respect to Jesus being pierced is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. You might like to jot it down. Zechariah 12, verse 10. Unfortunately, we don't have time to uh, turn it up and read it. It's a great passage. You might like to read from Zechariah 12, verse 10 through to 13, verse 1. That's sort of the relevant passage, I think. And the point of this passage is, it's a prophecy from the Old Testament again through the prophet Zechariah. The point from this passage is that as God saves his people, as he saves his remnant, he gives to them a spirit of compassion and remorse. So that when they look on the one who they pierced, and that's the bit that John picks up on, when they look on the one that they pierced, they're filled with mourning. They're filled with grief. And that's right, I take it, if you're a Christian in your experience. If you're a Christian person and call yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus, as you look at Jesus hanging on the cross, you're filled with thanks, sure, because there's our substitutionary Passover lamb. But also, doesn't it fill you with some sort of sense of grief at your own sin? Because it was our sin that put him there. Doesn't it make you want to mourn your own sin? We look at Jesus on the cross and yes, it makes us thankful, but it also should make us firm in our resolve to not continue 
in the ways of wickedness, in the ways of sin, in the ways of rebellion against God. And yet in that same passage in Zechariah, whilst it talks about being given a spirit of compassion and grief over our own sin, as we look on the one who's been pierced, it also goes on to talk about in verse 13, verse 1, about a fountain being opened up for God's people which will cleanse them from their sins. John's saying that prophecy is true here at the cross of Jesus. He's the pierced one who's a cause for godly sorrow, but also he's the pierced one through whom comes this fountain that might cleanse God's people from their sins. William Cowper lived in the 1700s in England. He had a tragic life, a life of much suffering. His mother died when he was six And that really was the start for him of a lifetime struggling with sadness and deep depression. Even as a Christian, uh, a friend described him as someone who despaired of his own salvation. Yet in the middle of this, somehow William Cowper wrote some of the most moving hymns in the English language. And I'm going to finish just by quoting to you the first verse of one particular hymn that's drawn out of this image from Zechariah applied to Jesus on the cross. The hymn is, There is a Fountain. You may know it. The first verse goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And then he repeats, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Maybe you sometimes relate to William Cowper's experience. How could God possibly forgive me? I am such a sinner. I am just so far from those things I've done in the past, my struggles at the moment, the depths of my own sort of blackness. How could God possibly forgive me? And we struggle on with guilty feelings. Even though sometimes we've repented of the sin and we've made restitution and we've done everything that could be done, but we still feel guilty. I want to say to you, Hear the words of William Cowper, who's telling you the words of God. There's a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when you, sinner, are plunged beneath that flood, you lose all, all your guilty stains. Know that from this pierced one, a fountain has been provided by God to wash you clean. Well, uh, what do you see as you stand there at the foot of the cross? What do you see? Just another crucifixion? Uh, It's sometimes interesting what we think we see. Uh, Here's just a bit of a thought experiment for you. You're standing on the side of a lake. It's sunset. You're standing next to a special friend. Let the hearer understand. Um, And you lean across and you say in that lovely voice that you have, Look, there's a G2 class star disappearing from our line of sight because of the rotation of the Earth. Electromagnetic radiation issuing from that star in the visible spectrum is being diffracted by atmospheric particles, but our relative position on the Earth's surface means that we are perceiving only the EM radiation of longer wavelength. Now, what do you see? You say, What a fantastic sunset! Look at the pink colours! That's what you say. What do you see? See? When you stand now at the foot of the cross and you look up and you see Jesus dying 
and saying, it is finished. It is accomplished. What do you see? Friend, know there that there is the sacrifice for your salvation. When you look there, see there the cleansing for your sins and see their hope and comfort for our suffering. What do you see?